This is The Based Catholic, because Catholicism should be the base of all hot takes. All the cool kids now are unwoke. Some of them are going back to Christianity, because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, and that's like... (laughs) It's the cover of Newsweek, so you have to be like a Catholic doing sing the rosary to be a problem now. Yeah. This current world we've created spiritually for people. It's about money and profit and everything has no history or tradition. Everything's so disorienting and people are going back to things that root them. And now your host, Jessica Kramer. Welcome to the Based Catholic. Coming from the world of conservative politics and media, I found myself wanting. Wanting more or less, depending on how you look at it. I wanted more Catholicism. More of the faith I chose that I believe is absolute and the answer to everything. And more of the stuff that built the West. The stuff that built the most magnificent cathedrals I have yet to see. The stuff that built the first hospitals and universities, schools, orphanages, social structures, great empires, and royal dynasties and art. In a word, culture. Before the Protestant revolt, before the false enlightenment, before the religious breakdown and wars of Europe, culture, not as we understand it today as popular fluff, but the all-encompassing stuff that makes a place. Specifically, I wanted something Catholic in a world that is anything but. I wanted to talk about the things that people in my generation are consumed by, what they actually care about when they're not on or being told what to care about. Many of them are politicos, but believe it or not, we're not talking about foreign policy and voice memos and at dinner. We're talking about what makes their heart come alive and what troubles them, their relationships, their successes and failures in love, what's wrong with the world today when it comes to trying to build a life. We need to treat these obstacles and concerns as if they matter, because they do. But I also wanted less. I wanted less regurgitation of what's happening and more of the deep and profound reasons as to why it's happening. I wanted someone to make the connection, to build the intellectual bridge between this thing and another. I wanted less 24-7 news cycles that you can't escape, full of political gossip and the same headlines, the same talking points you can't diverge from. I wanted to own the libs less and own my own side more for being lib. I wanted less Twitter. I wanted less conservatives using their platform to trash celebrities for the degradation of culture. I wanted them to instead actually contribute art to the culture. And I'm sorry, but Lady Ballers, which I didn't see and don't plan on seeing, isn't going to do it for me. I wanted less conservative stars complaining about celebrity culture and then participating in their own version of it on social media. I wanted less of getting close to the root of the problem, but never fully willing to go there because polls say it's unpopular, even though it's true. So I pitched the show. And as my former boss and guest on today's episode, Brempo Zelda III, says... A podcast is the only place where you can have a real discussion or debate in the modern journalistic landscape. Gone are the days of the Phil Donahue show or even Oprah when she was at her best. So in trying to do something different, I wanted to talk about a man who did do something different. A lost hero of the right, Brent Bozell Jr., the Catholic giant of the conservative movement of his time. I would make the case Buckley and Goldwater are actually libs in comparison. Definitely did not end their lives as base as they could have. Like Russell Kirk, another Catholic convert, Brent Bozell Jr. was one too. A redheaded Midwesterner who shipped out as a Marine in the Pacific during World War II, 
He came back and went to Yale, where he met his debate partner and best friend, William F. Buckley Jr. He was a founding member of the conservative movement, but after living abroad in Franco, Spain for a couple years with his family, where you breathe the Catholic thing there, he came back to the States completely disenchanted by conservative politics. He called it an inadequate substitute for Christian politics. He thought none of it mattered. He was right. He then started the Catholic intellectual magazine Triumph to be a prominent public contender and challenger to the shortcomings of thought leaders in National Review and the like. Listen to this excerpt of its mission from its early days. We acknowledge ourselves to be Roman Catholic laymen who revere the majestic tradition of the Christian church and of the Christian order, who note the present agony of the church and the desideration of the order, who regard the rescue of both as a joyful challenge and in the public sphere, the only intelligible ambition of Christians. Far from elaborating quasi-theological justifications for the permanent slavery of the suffering church, we shall be urging policies looking toward its liberation. People don't talk like that anymore, but they want to. So I decided to interview Brent Bozell Jr.'s son, Brent Bozell III, my old boss who heads up the Media Research Center, and I will later on in the show. But I first want to share an interview I did with Declan Leary, a fellow young fan of Triumph and Bozell. I am here with Declan Leary, former senior editor of The American Conservative and author of the upcoming book that will be released this summer, right from the start, The Conservative Populace and the Fight for America's Future. Declan, we were at a book launch for Michael Warren Davis back in, I don't even know, maybe a couple years ago at this point in Washington, D.C., and Triumph Magazine came up in conversation, and your reaction was to kind of geek out on it with me, which is why I wanted to have you on to talk about this. I wanted to first ask you, how did you learn of this seemingly forgotten piece of conservative media history, and why are you so inspired by it? My interest in Triumph was actually forced on me from a source that probably regrets it now. (laughs) This was the summer of 2019. I was an intern at National Review, and Rich Lowry, the, the editor of National Review, wanted somebody to write something about Triumph and about Brent Bozell and what had happened to the last round of sort of political Catholics in this country who broke off from the conservative movement. And Rich is great and wonderful and decided to give this chance to a young intern to write this piece that he wanted to see, probably not knowing that he would accidentally red pill that intern. (laughs) Um, So I spent probably a couple weeks of my summer that year reading old Brent Bozell essays, reading the exchanges with Frank Meyer, digging up not just the archives of National Review, but the archives of Triumph, the magazine that Brent Bozell founded when he left NR. And then, of course, this great biography by Daniel Kelly published by ISI Books a few years ago called Living on Fire. And those are really the only resources you have to read and learn about Brent Bozell because he's one of these forgotten fathers of the American right. And he really has not gotten as much historical attention as somebody like Buckley, of course, his brother-in-law and collaborator. So anyways, I spent all of this time reading and the intention, I think, why I had been asked to write this piece is to explain why an enterprise like Triumph fails in America. And this was, of course, 2019. So Amari had just written Against David Frenchism in First Things. Mm. The opening shot 
in the conservative civil war that has reopened the old wounds that Bozell had opened first in the 60s. And I kind of did land that way in 2019. And piece that I had written back then, I definitely expressed admiration for Bozell, but I was also critical of a lot of the ways that his political thought becomes impractical over the course of the 1970s. And I think certainly justifiably is overtaken by just rage at the regime of Roe v. Wade and the turn of the American order. But I've really softened in the past three years. And I think the seeds that were planted just reading over those old essays from the 60s and 70s have germinated very, very slowly. Like a lot of people, a lot of Catholics and a lot of conservatives over the past few years, I've very, uh, very nearly completely come around to seeing things Brent Bozell's way. Well, I think it's so funny that National Review wanted a piece about this because Triumph was kind of born out of Bozell's leaving National Review, right? Right. So you have Bozell really begins his career at the center of the burgeoning conservative movement. Bozell and Buckley, of course, went to college together. They were debating partners at Yale. And then after graduation in 1954, they co-wrote a defense of Senator Joe McCarthy, one of the great Catholic statesmen in American history, called McCarthy and His Enemies, The Record and Its Meaning. And then from there, Bozell is actually hired onto McCarthy's staff and becomes a personal friend. At the end of McCarthy's character assassination by the deep state, in the Senate censure proceedings, Bozell is the only staffer left to write McCarthy's defense of himself against the censure charges. And it's a beautiful speech and very powerful. And you can see not just the last gasp of McCarthy's great political vision, but also the first hints of Bozell's political vision. Well, what's so interesting about him, I think, is that between McCarthy and the fact that he lived in Spain with his family. These are two very controversial <laughs> figures, whether we're talking Franco, Spain or McCarthy. Explain that, I guess, well, for people who might be like, are these the people that you really want to get in bed with? And it's not just McCarthy and Franco either. After his ghostwriting for McCarthy, Brent Bozell goes and becomes a ghostwriter for Senator Barry Goldwater. Yes, although I, I think conservatism likes them a yes, little bit more. and so that's what's really interesting is that you have Bozell straddling all of the great divides of the 60s and 70s. There's a Brent Bozell for everyone to hate. <laughs> You have, most people don't know that uh, the conscience of a conservative, one of the founding yeah. texts of the institutional conservative movement, was actually ghostwritten by mm -hmm. Brent Bozell. Bozell attaches himself to firebrands and he takes the daring position. He's always sort of a man against the crowd. And I think, of course, there are political and there are philosophical reasons for it. But also, I think at base, it's just temperamental. He liked to fight. He's a debater. Right. And you need men like that, you know, somebody like Bozell, who's just always going to be in the arena, I think is just incapable of conceiving of the idea of backing down. You're probably aware of another very important story from the Bozell legendarium is the 1970 abortion protest at George Washington University Hospital, at which Bozell and I think about a dozen members of a University of Dallas student group called the Sons of Thunder are beaten 
beaten and then arrested by DC police for staging essentially a sit-in at one of the most prominent pre-Roe abortion facilities in the country. You know, he sort of saw before anybody else did that abortion was in fact going to become the defining issue of Christian politics in the second half of the 20th century. And of course, well into the 21st century, famously the next issue of triumph after the Roe vote was an all-black cover with black-edged pages, and it was sort of an act of mourning. But beyond just writing and speaking, Bozell really saw triumph as a vehicle for action and saw his role as requiring action. And so you see him leading, leading other men in these kinds of active protests that are really directed towards actual ends. They wanted, for that one day, abortion to stop in this facility. When that demand wasn't met, they were willing to actually go and see that it should be met. At the rally that preceded that sit-in, the wife of one of the regular Triumph contributors gave a speech and said that what was needed at that point was for men to stand before the abortionist's knife and the judge's gavel and say no to the murderers. Wow. And that, of course, in the coming years would become seen as this crazy extreme position, just as most of the things that Brent Bozell believed and argued for. Well, I was going to say, you know, the fact that he was a Catholic convert, which I'm a Catholic convert as well, I think that might have attributed to it all, too, because he was very convicted. You know, he chose it. I think he intellectually thought it through. And then I think when you know what the truth is, and if you're a really devout person, you want to live it. You know, you don't want to just have the talk, you want to walk the walk. I think younger generations, maybe born after Triumph's reign, or even those in the pro-life movement, wonder where the opposition in American politics to contraception and abortion was in the 60s and 70s. And so to learn of Triumph is to kind of learn that there was a small group of committed Catholics devoted to their faith and the teachings of the church more than the American social order or modern day conservative ethos. Was the magazine just really small? Why do you think people don't know about Triumph? Is it a deliberate hiding of the history? I mean, it was small. Of course, you know, you're operating on a fairly niche level. You're limiting yourself to Catholics, and then you're limiting yourself even further to conservative Catholics, and then you're limiting yourself even further to Catholics who are sort of uncomfortable with what's just happened in the council, but not willing to to jump the shark, so to speak. And then you're limiting yourself even further to the kinds of Catholics who are willing to subscribe to a monthly magazine. And then, of course, they have to not already have too many magazine subscriptions. In some ways, it's just the challenges that always face a magazine as a business model. And when you don't have deep pockets to pull from and you're not able to just lose lots and lots of money every year like all of these legacy institutions have for decades after decades after decades, 10 years is pretty much the lifespan you get. I think Triumph ran about as long and as wide as it could, but it is the nature of the beast that you're going to run out of road as a magazine. Uh, And the best you can hope is to be remembered and have the kind of afterlife the triumph has. How do you think it was distinct to other Catholic outlets at the time? Was there anything else like it? Has there been? No, there's really not. Most Catholic media at that point, just like most nominally Catholic media now, is very liberal. You have the sort of legacy institutions, American Magazine, the Jesuit Publication, Commonweal. These are the sort of prestige magazines in 1966 in Catholic media, just as they are still today. You know, there are conservative media that have emerged in the last few years, the last couple decades as a result of the internet. But none of those small publications that we see all 
all over the web today, of course, exist because you need to be able to sustain a print magazine in 1966. So Triumph is really the one. And even National Review actually recognizes that in an editorial at the launch in 1966, they commend Triumph as filling a very needed void for a conservative Catholic journal of opinion. Uh, And of course, the divide deepens over the next few years and you're no longer getting any complimentary editorials about Triumph. National Review. (laughs) But certainly at the beginning, they were recognized as standing alone. Well, I was thinking about it. You know, President Trump used to tout his legacy of being the most pro-life president, having nominated enough judges to getting Roe overturned. But like we saw this past November in my home state of Ohio, you know, little good that does the babies when the ghouls can just rally at the state level. How do you think the editors of Triumph would respond to President Trump's recent abandonment of this fight? Oh, I. it is an interesting question. I think it's very likely that Brent Bozell would have hated Donald Trump. Interesting. And I say that mostly because he hated Richard Nixon. I have a book coming out on conservative populism in which Bozell features as a minor character, but Nixon is sort of one of the main characters. Nixon, of course, is really the predecessor of everything that Trump did in the White House. And that brand of pragmatic, very pugilistic, but not necessarily very socially engaged conservatism that Nixon pioneered is really what defines the success of the Trump years. So it is is a great accident of providence that Trump is the president responsible for the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And Bozell certainly would have celebrated that. But I imagine mm. the things he would have had to say about Trump more generally would have been the same things he had to say about Nixon. He viewed the Nixon nomination and the Nixon presidency really as the final nail in the coffin of the conservative movement that he had served. Now, what would the Triumph editors make of the modern Republican Party in general? Would they have a guy that they would support? No, uh, for sure they would not. Um, (laughs) I think they would actually have a lot of good things to say about post-2016 Marco Rubio. Okay. They are very, we would use the word populist, they would call themselves distributist, but they are very critical Mm. of capitalism and of the moral ravages of the modern economic order in a way that some populists, some sort of Trumpy, new right, common good conservatives have started to recognize over the past few years. And I think they would give credit where credit is due on that front. Of course, their paramount issue was abortion and the sanctity of life. I thought it was really bold for them to take on sexual politics the way that they did. But I mean, you have to commend them for doing so. I mean, that was those were two very radical decades that really changed the course of the country. Yes. And you have when Humani Vitae comes out, National Review is very critical of Humani Vitae. Buckley himself really comes out against Pope's teaching on birth control. Warren Carroll, who is the founding president of Christendom College and a sort of Bozell disciple in some ways, in his obituary of Bozell described Triumph as the only Catholic publication in America to celebrate the arrival of Humani Vitae. It's sort of easy to forget that. There were publications that outright opposed it, both on the left and the right, and there were publications that just sort of let it pass or were kind of ambivalent about it. But really, Triumph alone understood the sort of world historical significance of that document and the effect that Humani Vitae and its warnings would have on the politics of the ensuing decades. Absolutely. 
Well, since you've been in media, what's your opinion of conservative media nowadays, especially those that favor the flavors of the new right that are sympathetic to integralist post-liberal politics? You know, why do you think that there's not more support for this philosophical movement in conservatism? Because it seems like it was having a moment not too long ago. Yeah, I think in some ways the answer to that can be the same as my answer on Triumph. You need money to run a magazine. There are talented writers, there's great content, and there are a decent number of readers, I think certainly a sustainable number. I imagine if Triumph were to be revived tomorrow, it would never get crazy numbers, but certainly a new Triumph would get... 10,000 subscribers or so. So it's not that there isn't a market there and it's not that it's not possible. For one thing, you need a Brent Bozell figure, somebody who is sort of daring and brave and willing to step into the breach. And then you need a lot of resources to get something like that off the ground. That perfect mixture just hasn't come together yet in the new century. Well, I asked because I heard a rumor that you wanted to resurrect Triumph. Would you keep the name or would you rebrand? I think it's a great name. That's a practical question more than anything. (laughs) I have wondered myself, what are the practical prospects for bringing something like Triumph back in 2024? It's unclear, actually. I've looked through trademark records. It's unclear if they ever got the rights to the name in the first place. But if they did, it's unclear who owns it now. What direction do you think the future of conservatism in this country will go? And what do you think is the most popular direction among younger people? It's a tough question, right? Because it seems like Trump really was a a sort of epoch-shifting event, that there is no going back to pre-2016 and then this kind of populist, very comfortable with state power, very aggressive conservatism is on the rise. But then you have something like the results from the Iowa caucus coming back, where something like 35% or close to it of the youngest cohort votes for DeSantis over Trump. Maybe there's a path forward there. DeSantis is Catholic and he's socially conservative and he does have some populist leanings. But I'm less hopeful now than I was a couple weeks ago before the caucuses. I think there is a real possibility. And this is, you know, this is appropriate. Brent Pozell was faithful, but he was never particularly optimistic. (laughs) Um... He He was realistic. He he knew, he saw saw the reality. (laughs) Yes, he saw all of Western civilization as an inexorable decline. He saw the American regime as essentially irredeemable by the end of his life and his career. And I'm not quite there yet, but I'm not, I'm not going to hold out too much hope either. Okay, there's a certain type of social media video I cannot stand. It's the reaction video. But it's not the offering of an original thought in response to the video that I have an issue with. It's the lack of an original thought. There are people with very large followings who don't say a word in a clip, but just watch the viral video. So they're ultimately getting clicks and likes on someone else's content. Why would I want to watch them watch something rather than just watch the actual video? Especially when their reaction, if they even give one, is the same as everyone else on the right. That's just one of the qualms I have with modern conservative media. But I decided to ask other young Catholic conservative women if they were satisfied with the mainstream conservative movement and media, and if not, what they'd like to see instead. 
So I find myself pretty disappointed in the modern conservative movement, especially the media. I am not satisfied with the conservative movement in America or conservative media. Short answer, no, I'm not satisfied with the conservative media and the conservative movement in America. I find that the conservative movement is just looking for shock factor. They're just looking for people to view their media. Conservative media tends to just kind of say things for the shock factor. I think a conservative position should be shocking, but I think that sometimes there's maybe a better way of presenting the material. Kind of just think of people like Candace Owens, who I think sometimes just takes like overly extreme positions on the right just to maybe gain an audience. I'm not entirely sure what the motive is there. The people that are in conservative media get a little self-obsessed, like the talking heads of conservative media. They rely too much on themselves, you know, like their opinion on things. I think that people put their politics before their religion, and we find a lot of people who are Christian conservatives, but in reality they're conservatives, and then they're Christian. Your politics should really be informed rather by your belief system, your religion, your values. When I look at these um, conservative media talking heads, they don't really seem very rooted in Christ. I think the problem is, is that people are expected to put their political ideology as their number one, and that is frankly an idol. It's idolatry. Just the same as liberalism, we need to put Christ first and allow him to inform our political movements in love of him, not in hatred of the other. I think that another issue in conservative media is that we have literally tried to erase the fact that the conservative philosophy is all about traditions and traditional morals and values. I even remember seeing this clip about this calendar that was full of conservative women in swimsuits. The presenter didn't have an issue with this and I'm like, as conservatives, we shouldn't be putting forth a calendar with women that are half naked, there's a lot of things that are clashing and very inconsistent. I don't find that they're looking for true solutions. And I especially see this in the pro-life movement. I think when you've created jobs around politics and now even pro-life work, where you have all these great organizations, they want to do well, but now people have jobs that are linked to them. So how much are you actually looking to solve problems or are the problems keeping your job going? And so it's easier to talk about it and find solutions that won't completely fix the problem. It seems kind of like the conservatives are trying to win the left in a way that's maybe not staying true to their position. I think that a lot of people are, you know, responding too quickly to things. The liberals have taken over the media and they're just so reactionary and so ready to have a hissy fit about everything. So I think that the conservative media needs to just slow down and not pander to this reactionary reporting culture. I would like to see the conservative movement actually make a difference instead of just riling people up. Because I see this with like my parents watching or listening to conservative media and talk shows. What is it giving you that you can actually do? I'm Krames, and this is my corner. We'll be back with Mr. Brent Bozell III after this break. You won't want to miss that interview. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to The Base Catholic. I'm your host, Jessica Kramer. We are back with the founder and head of the Media Research Center, Brent Bozell III, my former boss, to discuss his father, Brent Bozell Jr., and his legacy with Triumph Magazine. Mr. Bozell, I wanted to have you on because I've been wanting to speak with you for quite some time now regarding Triumph Magazine and your father's legacy as one of these Catholic giants in the conservative movement. You often hear about Russell Kirk and Barry Goldwater and Bill Buckley being the fathers of modern conservatism. But what most people, at least people my age, don't know is that your father, Brent Bozell Jr., actually wrote The Conscience of a Conservative and started his own magazine, Triumph, because his best friend and brother-in-law, your uncle, William F. Buckley Jr. and National Review, weren't being based enough, weren't being Catholic enough. When you reflect on him as the figure, all his accomplishments and the bold direction he had the courage to go in, what do you make of his remembrance in the conservative movement of his time? Well, let's ask ourselves how he would want to be remembered. (laughs) If you were to list his conservative bona fides, there are many. He was one of the founding editors of National Review. He did co-write McCarthy and His Enemies with uh, Bill Buckley. He did write The Conscience of a Conservative, which I believe remains the highest selling polemic in history. He did write speeches for Barry Goldwater and all manner of other people. He did help co-found the American Conservative Union. He did participate in the Sharon Statement. He did do lots of those (laughs) things. But if you were to ask him, he would tell you, none of it was important. He really would. Wow. At the end, he didn't think any of it was important because he had a, not a conversion of faith. He had that as a youth, but he had a conversion of thinking in the mid-1960s, where actually it was in the early 1960s, which really coalesced when he went to Spain and came back. And suddenly, politics was unimportant to him. Mm. The politics of Catholicism was important to him. Uh, But conservative politics weren't. And in fact, he ultimately, one might say politically, he might have moved somewhat to the left. Because remember, the social justice is a Christian construct. Mm -hmm. And he became a big advocate of social justice. So there would be those, some on the right, who would say, well, that makes you a liberal. Uh, His answer would have been, no, that makes me a real conservative. I was going to say it makes him Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> it makes him Catholic. And he didn't care. He didn't care. In his autobiography, the subtitle was A Conservative Becomes a Catholic. At least my friends, people that I speak with, young Catholics, I think a lot of them are disenchanted by the conservative movement. They don't like many politicians, they don't like many talking heads. So there's something about that that I really resonate with. And something else that I found out when reading about your dad, and I don't remember if this came up that one time that we talked was his conversion to Catholicism, that he grew up Protestant in Nebraska, but that he went to a Jesuit all-boys high school. And I, you know, being a Midwesterner myself, who was also raised Protestant, and yet I went to a Catholic high school, eventually converting to Catholicism, I thought what was interesting in his story was that he put off his conversion for a year because of family and the death of his father, but that his father also put off conversion to Catholicism because of family reasons. So I wanted to ask you, I don't know if this is too personal, but who were the intimidating forces in this family beyond the patriarch himself? And what did they think of what your father ended up doing? Because he wasn't just your average Catholic convert. I mean, he was really trying to assert well, the faith in the public sphere. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that, that they were fine with it. It was an interesting upbringing in the sense that his father, my grandfather, from Bozell I, was a, um, a partner in the advertising firm of Bozell and Jacobs. What was interesting about Bozell and Jacobs were that the two partners were 
one a Presbyterian, the other one a Jew. In Omaha, Nebraska, in the 1920s, there weren't too many corporations with partners that were Christians and Jews. It just weren't. My father's upbringing was very open in that sense. Now, he converted. There is a story that my, my mother tells of my father, the night before he shipped off to the war in the Pacific, was in his room on his knees praying. And my grandfather quietly came to his side and got on his knees and prayed. And my father was convinced that he was going to convert at that point. But a few months later, he died. Wow. Now, Declan Leary, who I also interviewed for this episode, you know, he kind of cheekily said (laughs) between his associations working for McCarthy and Goldwater and then living abroad in Franco, Spain, he said there's a Brent Bozell for everyone to hate. And I appreciate someone convicted enough willing to be controversial. I was going to ask you, do you think he was revered or despised in the conservative movement for taking such strong stands? Did he kind of have the Trump effect? And then I also wanted to know if you think since his passing, history has changed its mind or looked at it all differently. Boy, two really good questions. You can add another controversial thing, uh, (laughs) which was was really a fun one. He got a chuckle out of this one. When McCarthy's defense was falling apart and he was so dissatisfied with the job Ray Cohn was doing, he turned to my father, who was then just in his 20s, a young lawyer, and asked him to write his summation, his presentation, the speech he would give before the Senate. My dad wrote it for him and gave it to him. And he said, now, if you give this speech, you're going to get censored. And Joe McCarthy looked at it and uh, he said, it's exactly what I want to say. He (laughs) gave it and it got censored. Then some years later, the father of former Senator Chris Dodd, I think his name was George or something like that, Dodd, who was a moderate Democrat, got himself into trouble doing something or other. And he called my father and he asked my dad to write the speech he was going to give before the Senate. My dad wrote the speech for him and gave it to him. And he said, now, if you give this speech, you're going to get censored. But Dodd looked at the speech and he said, this is exactly what I want to say. He gave the <laughs> speech and he was censored. And no one ever asked my father to write another speech for him in the Senate. And so anyway, that's the story. I love that he said exactly what they wanted to say, though. That's that's pretty amazing. Look, my father was utterly unfamiliar with the color gray his entire life. It was an, an astounding proposition that everything was black and white, which is why he was so clear in his thinking, mm. which is why he could analyze an issue so clearly and why he never lost a debate and why he was a master order because he could see the world in those terms. And that's what happened in 1964, I guess, or 65. There had been growing tensions, growing disenchantment that my father had with the conservative movement. Uh, We went to Spain in 61. In the two years that he lived so deeply immersed in Catholic Spain and a Catholic culture where this was a world unknown to anyone today, where everyone went to church and it was so vibrantly lived. I only learned this a few years ago, that we came within a whisper of never returning uh, to the United States. (laughs) Wow. We really did. really did. They had planned on going for two years. They'd leave the home in Spain for two years. What was the motivation and the reason? In 1948, after the war, he had hitchhiked throughout Europe, and he had discovered this town called El Escorial in Spain. This town is now a city and very famous in Europe. It's a big artsy place on the continent. But in 1948, it was absolutely 
unknown. And yet it was the center of the Catholic empire in the 16th century. It was the massive complex that was built by Philip II in 1586, I think it was, when it was completed, that housed a basilica, a monastery, the palaces, a school where I went to school. Oh, so cool. A royal library everything. And he fell in love with this town. So we returned 13 years later, this time with a wife and eight children. Oh my gosh. A little bit different. (laughs) But we were there for two years and they fell so madly in love with Spain. And this town so madly in love with them because we were the only Americans living there. Do you have heritage that reaches far back to Spain? None. No, no, couldn't do it. We were all for all intents and purposes. We'd become Spaniards as children. We were in an all-Spanish school. I was seven years old. I no longer spoke English. I spoke Spanish. My mother recounted to me that they just hadn't told us that they spent a weekend praying and talking and finally concluded that the battle was in the United States and the war was in the United States and they were Americans and they had to be involved in, in that war. So when he came back, it was a war of ideas where suddenly conservative politics, it was basically so empty to It was the political, and he was seeing transcendent truths, and he was seeing far, far deeper issues at play. And to him, that was the war that was taking place Mm. in the United States. It was a spiritual war, not a political, not a cultural, it was spiritual. And what he saw was a conservative movement that was superficial. And so when the conservative movement endorsed Richard Nixon in 1968, he was groaning. What do we believe in when we rally behind this guy? The schism came in either 68 or 69. When National Review published an article by Claire Booth Luce that argued that perhaps conservatives should accept abortion. And that was it. And with that, my father penned a cover article entitled A Letter to Yourselves. It was an essay calling on conservative Catholics to break from the conservative arena because the conservative political arena had left them. And that caused the massive schism between him and Bill Buckley, who was his best friend in college. And it lasted for the rest of their lives. And it ripped them apart. You know, it makes me think of what's going on with the movement now. I mean, do you ever think what he would think about the current present moment? Oh, he'd be horrified. He'd, we'd be in Spain. <laughs> he'd have laughed. <laughs> Uh, We'd be in Spain. <laughs> or maybe hungry. Yes, maybe hungry. That's my father saw that kind of thing. By the way, he would have predicted all of this. He had a gift for discerning the future. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. He predicted the war with communists trying to make a beachhead in Central America 15 years before it happened. The most salient prediction he made to me was a conversation we had. This would have been circa 19. 1990, where there was something that had transpired where the gay agenda was concerned. It was losing every battle, but it was a little tiny skirmish that it had won. I don't remember what it was. And I mentioned it to him. His jaw dropped and he said, this is the worst possible thing that could happen to American society. And I said, no, abortion's the worst thing that could happen to American society. He said, no, no, no. What this will do ultimately will be to destroy the family. If you had an intact nuclear family, I think the pro-life movement would have won by now. One thing that I'm trying to square is I wanted to ask you, 
why he worked for Goldwater, because I had heard that Goldwater was for abortion rights like so many other conservatives at that time. Abortion was an issue in 1964. It came on the scene rather quickly. It was the District of Columbia and then like California and then New York that came in with liberalized abortion laws in the late 60s. In the early 60s, it wasn't an issue, political or otherwise. It just wasn't. It didn't exist. There was a reissue of the conscience of a conservative put out by the Goldwater Institute a few years ago. And in it, it was trying to project the libertarian perspective on the world. Amazingly, the Goldwater Institute people asked Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to write the introduction, the new introduction. And in it, wow. uh, he argued, to try to argue that the conscience of a conservative championed abortion. If I recall, on page two, <laughs> it doesn't. It goes in the opposite direction. Toward the end of his life, Goldwater took a very libertarian position, first on gay rights, and then later on on abortion. Had he taken that position, A, he never would have won the Republican nomination in 1964. And B, my father wouldn't have been in the same zip code with him. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of your father being ahead of his time, I was going to ask, is it because he was such a student of history? Is it that he was so infused with Catholic thought that, you know, like the church has a stance and an opinion on everything? Like, what do you attribute to why he was so on it with what was going to come? He understood forces in history. He understood why a Catholic Spain emerged. He understood why the Roman Empire fell. From that standpoint, he saw the past as a roadmap to the future. He saw where trends were going. For example, in looking in Central America, he saw Central America as the salvation of the United States because he saw that Central America would be the last place where Catholicism would flourish. Therefore, he was all in favor of immigration, not because of jobs, but because it brought Catholicism. John Paul II, St. John Paul II, the same thing. He came out with a declaration that said that the two nations where Catholicism needed to be proselytized were Spain and the United States, which is amazing. Wow. Spain was the heart of Catholicism, and yet he's calling for it to be proselytized. The United States, he saw what was happening. My dad saw the same thing. Well, speaking of forward thinking, Triumph was the same. It had the foresight to know what should be on people's minds. Do you think that that's missing in conservative commentary? Would your dad be a fan of anyone on the new right, the thought leaders, and maybe the integralist or post-liberal circles? I, I'm sure if he was hard-pressed to name somebody, he might. Uh, I think he'd be horrified. Oh, by the way, by the way, I think Bill Buckley would be horrified by the political scene today. Uh, wh where do you go to have a debate? Fox News. I love my friends at Fox News. But there you give a one sentence soundbite and you're done. Yeah. And all you're doing is commenting on the host. You're not even offering an original idea. Where are ideas debated? People don't read magazines anymore. People don't read newspapers. There's no such thing as long form journalism. So where can you have a discussion? A podcast, by the way, is the last place where you can have a real discussion. Think about that. That's frightening. We live in terabytes. We live in pithy social media mm -hmm. um, comments. There's no sense of decorum anymore. My wife and I were talking last night about a member of Congress throwing out obscenities. Yeah. Uh, this is a conservative woman throwing out obscenities on the campaign trail. No, my dad would be horrified. He'd also be horrified by the superficiality of it all. And in some cases, the artificiality of, of, of it all. I was visiting with one now well-known 
young conservative leader a couple of years ago because I wanted to get inside of his head to see what was there. And after spending a day with him, I concluded there was a lot there. This guy was the real thing, the real McCoy, uh, intelligent, well-grounded, all those things. That night I had dinner with some of his staff and it was just the opposite. They were walking idiots. They knew nothing. It was like Spain after Franco. It embraced freedom, but it forgot that the flip side of the coin is responsibility. Mm. And you see so many young people today, and this is the narcissism that you see. It's all about themselves. It's all about doing whatever you want to. They're not grounded in anything. So it's very easy for them to say, well, I'm against the federal government. I'm in favor of the individual. But freedom needs to lead somewhere. And for them, freedom is the beginning and the end. For my dad, it wasn't. I love that. If you go back to the greatest debate that was ever held in the pages of National Review was the freedom versus virtue debate that he had with Frank Meyer. Frank Meyer was a libertarian. My dad was a traditionalist. And the question was, what's more important, freedom or virtue? This went on back and forth, several issues. It was two absolute giants arguing this. And every time you read one person's position, you agreed with him. You went to the other, you agreed with him. Ultimately, of course, my father won because I'm his son and I say he won. <laughs> um, and here's why it's really interesting. The United States is the only nation on earth, to my knowledge, where freedom trumps virtue because we live in a constitutional republic and the constitution is a document that champions freedom. If you look at the European model of this, virtue trumps freedom. The problem is that their virtue is in many cases evil. The virtue that they push is a leftist political ideology that they wrap around virtue, you know, wanting to get rid of carbon emissions, which ultimately means getting rid of the human race. That becomes a virtuous thing. Transgender mutilation of children, that's a virtuous Mm. thing from their perspective. But they put virtue over freedom. They say that if you have to give up freedoms in order to be carbon neutral, then you ought to do that. If you have to give up your freedom as a parent in order to allow your child to flourish as a transgender, then you ought to do that. That's not the kind of virtue my father was advocating. But he was saying that faith is more important than politics. And it's just as simple as that. Now, I'm sure not a ton of people know this, and I want to hear it from you because I heard about this story. I heard your mother was the managing editor of Triumph and ran the day-to-day operations and that it was her slap heard round the world at Catholic U that actually saved the magazine for another five years of its run. Can you tell that story? Oh, absolutely true. Um, (laughs) It's cool. I'm like, I want to meet this woman. (laughs) So, so, my mother was the most darling, sweet, angelic, saintly person, unless you got on her bad side. That's Um, what makes it even more extraordinary, because it's like you probably wouldn't uh, have thought it would come out of her. This was a woman who was beautifully dressed and wore pearls, but could also be carrying a luger at the same time. True story. Um, Oh, my God. No, no, no. (laughs) She was wonderful. Uh, We don't have time for a story, but I could tell you a story about her that you would love. T. Grace Atkinson was this radical feminist, lesbian agitator who was taking to campuses around the country, preaching this anti-Catholic dogma that talked about the Virgin Mary being knocked up and on and on and on. That's why Jesus was born. And amazingly, Catholic University invited her 
to speak. When that happened, my father called for a prayer vigil and for a rosary to be said outside of the hall. My mother uh, asked if she could go. My father said no, because he didn't trust her. And but she she was going to go. And he told her that she had to behave. And she promised she would. But as he told the story, he was leading a sizable group in a rosary. When he loved, my mother was no longer there. And she had just slipped away. Uh, she went inside and she slapped T. Grace Atkinson on the stage. Oh, my. And, and, and it got into uh, Time Magazine. And, you know, Bill... <laughs> William Buckley's sister slaps speaker at Catholic University. And yes, subscriptions shot through the roof that day. Thought magazines have always been a difficult financial proposition. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a a magazine that's a proponent of traditional Catholicism, a deep, deep intellectual magazine, you know, it was going to appeal to a small strand of Americans. When my dad broke with National Review, he also knew that he was committing virtual suicide financially because he lost half of the subscribers to it because it was built on his fame from National Review. So he knew this was going to happen, but it was something that he believed had to happen. But she was the one, she kept it going when she slapped it. So, you know, we were looking around after that. Who can she slap next? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. And then just last question, because it is an election year. President Trump used to tote himself as the most pro-life president. Now he's seemingly backing away from the issue on abortion and the fight. What do you think your father would tell Catholics? I mean, obviously, I would say you still got to vote for him. But what do you think he would tell Catholics needs to be the future of the party, of the conservative movement moving forward? If, if he was asked to endorse Trump, he probably wouldn't because he didn't see this as a binary proposition. Never did. Really? Uh, again, black and white. Oh, yeah. So uh, he never he, voted that, for the lesser of two evils? No, 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 no. He didn't believe in that. He believed that evil was evil. In defense of President Trump, I wrote one of the pieces that was in the now infamous Never Trump issue of National Review. I never was a Never Trump, but I was supporting Ted Cruz. And I argued in that piece that the difference between Cruz and Trump was that Trump didn't walk with us. Trump had never supported us. Trump had been, up until the time he ran, he'd been on the other side on virtually every issue, one of them being abortion. Now, the record speaks for itself. Trump, I believe, has been the most pro-life president in the history of the republic. And I can say that because you only look back to 1972, since the time of Roe v. Wade, Donald Trump is the only president. We checked this out and confirmed it. He's the only Republican nominee or incumbent who ever running for election because he wanted to name a pro-life Supreme Court justice. Yeah. No other candidate or incumbent ever used that phrase. Or even spoke in, at the in, March in, for in Life. Campaigning. Or spoke at the March for Life. Yeah. Absolutely right. He sent Mike Pence the first year, then he spoke himself. So if you look at his bona fides in his first term, they were there. He needs to be credited for that. Now, can you say that that was just crass political calculation? Maybe. <laughs> maybe so. You know, this is Donald Trump. Yeah. But all I know is what he did and what he did should be applauded. Now, but would my dad have applauded him for this? Absolutely, he would have. Even if he thought it was a crass, opportunistic thing, he would have still said, but it's a good thing. Yeah, works um, for our ends. My dad, <laughs> yeah, my dad would have been critical of him, but where there were areas where he could endorse and promote, he'd have done it. He'd have done it. But there wouldn't have been as many as you might think. 
That's all I have for you this week. I want to thank my guests for sharing their knowledge and story with us. Father Kevin Estabrook of Cleveland for being my show's chaplain, Mark Cumming for helping me with this week's show, and you for listening. Please share this on Apple or Spotify with anyone who you think might enjoy it, specifically anyone based. Animal based! If you're like Aria and need more based, make sure you never miss an episode of The Based Catholic. Saturdays at 5 p.m. on AM 1420. The answer, as well as on all podcasting platforms and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Jessica Kramer helps you be Catholic and be based. There's a show. That's a show.